Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. Hello and happy Friday. It's Tim Smith, senior producer at Changelog. I'm doing a feed takeover today to play for you an episode of my new show, Away From Keyboard. Away From Keyboard is a show about the human side of creative work, where I talk to creative professionals about their story, what makes them tick, how they do what they do, and the challenges of life and creative work. The following is my latest episode with Jeff Robbins. Enjoy. From Changelog Media, this is Away From Keyboard, a show exploring the human side of creative work. I'm Tim Smith. Where do I even begin to introduce Jeff Robbins? You see, Jeff has had a few different successful careers in the time that most of us get around to one. He worked on the web before there was a web, started a company that's built some of the most famous Drupal websites. And as if that weren't enough, he was in a band in the 90s that signed with AM Records, toured the U.S. and Canada, and played some of the coolest events. So where exactly does Jeff's story begin? In a magical place called <laughs> the 80s. <laughs> uh, okay, let's go into the Wayback Machine, Tim. Man, so, I mean, I've been interested in computers you know, and and that kind of stuff for a long time. And I'm old, so it goes way back. You know, in the 80s, my dad bought a IBM PC Junior, which was like the cheaper one that you could, that people could afford for their house. And I started learning basic programming on that. And then I, uh, yeah, I did all kinds of stuff. I had a, a Hewlett Packard programmable calculator that I'd won in the state math fair. Or this, it was the science fair. In my town, it was the math fair. Then we went to to the state science fair and I won this calculator and I programmed it to play Monopoly. So I, you know, I'm a nerd going way back to the eighties. <laughs> and, uh, and then I bought an Atari ST computer that, uh, had a MIDI port, had MIDI ports on it. So I could hook it up to my synthesizers and drum machines and stuff like that. And, uh, I remember I worked all summer to save up the $1,200 or whatever it was that the, the Atari cost. And then I realized like, if I got a modem, I could connect to these bulletin board systems and talk to people and, I don't know, find out information and stuff. And so I did that, you know, with the various bods of modem, modems over the years. And uh, I eventually realized that I could make some money with my computer skills. And, <laughs> and uh, I started doing temp work on Macs and learned desktop publishing and eventually learned freehand, which was kind of a precursor to what we now call Illustrator, and yeah. uh, ended up getting a job at O'Reilly doing technical illustrations for their books. Um, and they were connected to the internet, which was oh, really cool. And so I could FTP out to things. And I there was a, a thing called Gopher, which was a pre precursor to the web. Um, and I could connect to these free software, like actually free software, not pirated software, uh, <laughs> but, you know, like open source software boards and download uh, yeah. software. And it was so much faster than doing it over my modem. And then the web started and O'Reilly being kind of one of the uh, kind of at the crossroads of that stuff, uh, you know, writing about books about TCP IP and uh, all of, you know, they had a book about Gopher and and FTP and all that kind of stuff. Um, the people at CERN who were 
developing the HTTP protocol and uh, and HTML, um, came to Cambridge, came to the office in Cambridge where I was working, and kind of did this pitch like, "Hey, you need, I'll need to get into the web. The web's going to be the big thing. We want this to be a big, big thing." And O'Reilly should write books about it. And Tim O'Reilly and and uh, Dale Doherty, being the visionaries that they are, said, "Well, we're going to do more than that. We'll create an online magazine and use our publishing skills to to do web stuff." And so they started creating uh, the Global Network Navigator, GNN.com. And I was involved uh, in a lot of the brainstorming of that. And the woman who would eventually become my wife was the designer. Uh, so my, my wife is the first commercial web designer. And I got so excited that before GNN even launched, I started one of the world's first web development companies in uh, 1993. And it was an uphill battle because no one had heard of the web. <laughs> no one wanted a website because they didn't know what it was. They feel like they were they would say things like, ah, oh, I got burned. Uh, we spent all this money on a CompuServe page. We invested all this money in Prodigy and and now Prodigy is shutting down. How, how is the web going to be better than that? And uh, and so I would have to do sales pitches that were like that. And then uh, about a year later, um, my band got caught up in a all record labels were very excited about it. We got caught up in a bidding war and I said goodbye to uh, web stuff and spent the rest of the, the 90s uh, in a van driving around the country. <laughs> wow. And uh, we eventually played Lollapalooza and all sorts of radio festivals and I got to see most of the places in the United States and Canada and a few places in Europe and, and all that kind of stuff. And a lot of my web friends went on to found what are now very big empire <laughs> kind of right <laughs> and uh but i was there you know cool guy who they met through web stuff who was in a band and the band was touring around and playing Lollapalooza and stuff. And for me, they were like, oh, I, I know the guy that started Flickr and right. Blogger and Twitter and Slack and things like that. So so what what did you do with your company when you decided to, to tour with the band? Uh, I handed it over to uh, my business partner. Was that a difficult decision for you? I got offered a record deal, Tim, <laughs> in 1994. It was like rock and roll. No, it was not a difficult decision. <laughs> I figured that'd be the answer, but I wanted to ask just in case. Uh, you know, I mean, the, the, I also I started doing web stuff uh, for for the band. We were uh, we created the first uh, record label website for the little independent record label that we were running uh, on the side. My band was one of the first bands to have a, a website, um, uh, and and then uh, we got signed to A and M Records, and I was in there talking to them about like, oh, what are you guys doing with this whole web thing? And they kind of looked at me like. Um, well, if were there are any conferences that you want to go to and you could speak on behalf of A&M. And so I kind of for, uh, you know, I don't know, a couple of years before they kind of got going with it, I was sort of like the de facto web guy for A&M Records while I was in one of the bands on their label and stuff like that. So I kept my hand in. What brought you back to the web? Well, in, in about 2001, there were a whole bunch of record label mergers. There were in the, in the 90s, there were uh, nine major record labels. And over the course of about a year and a half, that number went to three. So basically, they just all sort of collapsed in on each other. And, you know, our first album had done well, but basically A&M came back to us and said, hey, you know, I, we think you've got momentum here. Rather than squeezing everything we can out of this album, why don't you go in and do another album? Uh, however, when the accountants came plumbling through <laughs> to 
<laughs> try and decide which bands to keep and which to leave while these labels were merging. We just hadn't sold enough records. And so uh, we, we lost our record deal. And um, we kind of fumbled on for a while. We put out some stuff independently and went back to that record label that we'd started back in like 91, 92. And, you know, it was a few years before the uh, label money dried up. But I, you know, started, put out my shingle and started doing uh, freelance stuff. I got a job at an ad agency uh, through a series of circumstances and coincidences. Uh, my wife and I ran Ringo Starr's website for I don't know, about three three years. And that sort of led to bigger and other projects for sort of celebrity type people and, and kind of bigger and bigger web projects, which eventually led me to Drupal. Uh, and in trying to build a really big and difficult Drupal website, I met Matt Westgate, who was just a guy doing work in the Drupal community. And I met him on a message board because he was just the most friendly person answering my questions, all of my really like kind of beginnery questions. And uh, and he was super friendly. And I said, hey, can I get on the phone with you? Can I just ask you these questions? I would pay you. I'd done the math. And if like I could pay you to answer these Drupal questions for me, then it would save me time and, and it would be well worth it for me to pay you out of my own pocket. And so I did that. And the whole time I'm saying, this is so great. This You really know this stuff. This is like, you can't find this information anywhere. And uh, as the project was starting to wrap up, I kept saying to him like, I, I, we got to do something. I, I, I got to, I, I got to pay you back more than just the money I'm paying you. Like, let's do some, let's start a company where we can just, you can explain to people how to use Drupal. <laughs> I know how to start a company. I know how to promote things. And, uh, and that's what, became Lullabot. And Lullabot started in, in uh, 2006. And it was still really early days, uh, you know, with, with Drupal, there weren't any books out about it or anything like that. So we, you know, Lullabot people authored some of the first, well, Matt authored one of the first Drupal books. And uh, we started the first Drupal related podcast and did the first Drupal trainings and, um, and built a lot of the kind of first Drupal websites that people have heard of. We launched on January 1st, 2006, uh, mostly to just make it easy to remember. <laughs> and by by March, I have pictures of us sitting in a pub in London where we were starting work on the MTV UK website, wow. which was kind of the first website where, you know, because previous to that, it was like, oh, the, you know, University of Calgary has built uh, their, you know, uh, this website, you know, like, oh, that's really cool. Like, right. okay. But it wasn't like MTV you know yeah. and uh and so you know from there we we did all kinds of stuff think think back to 2006 to you what what was the scariest thing of starting a, a company <laughs> i i don't know so about a year prior to that maybe a year a little over a year prior to that, I had a job at an ad agency and my wife and I were running Ringo Starr's website and the people at the ad agency kind of thought that was cool and a little bit like, why, why, why are you here at this little Providence ad agency when you're doing all these things out there? Uh, but my wife was pregnant. Um, we just bought a new house and I walked into my manager's office to ask for more time off. I was out of my vacation days, but there was another web conference I wanted to go to and I thought it was fine. Just don't pay me, you know, and, and he turned to me and he said, what are you doing here? Like, why are you working here? <laughs> you could be doing other things. You know that, right? And I said, uh, yeah, I know, I guess so. He said, go do other things. I said, uh, okay. All right. And so I left there and I left that job. And as I was driving home, I was thinking, wait a minute, 
did I just quit or was I <laughs> fine? I just bought a house. I've got a mortgage my, and I've got, I've got a, you know, my son was born like, you know, three months later. And like, so jumping off into the abyss is kind of my skill. <laughs> like, <laughs> And so I'm not saying that it's not scary. I'm saying that perhaps my skill is just not being able to estimate how scary it will be. <laughs> Right. So was Lullabot scary? No, not at all. It seemed like the next thing to do. And and we had a whole lot of, of success early on. I mean, the fact that we got MTV within three months of starting was key. Like, you know, right. it felt like, oh, this this is good. It's a positive feedback mechanism. But, you know, as we started to hire people, there, there were definitely fearful points, you know, why, why, why am I doing this? Um, and it yeah. always, it's the same, it's the same thing with the band or anything. It's like, well, why am I doing this? The answer is because at one point I thought it would be really cool. <laughs> <laughs> right. I thought, like, ah, that'd be cool. I'm going to do that. The, the metaphor I always use is like, it would be really cool to swim across this lake. And about halfway swimming across the lake, it's like, what the F? Why did I do this? You know, <laughs> This is crazy. You know, I have no idea how I'm going to get across this lake, you know. And then you get to the other side and all these people come up and go like, wow, it is so great. That, wow, how did you? I don't know how you did that. That's so great. You know, it's like, because I was going to drown otherwise. <laughs> like, I don't know. Like, there's some lessons in there somewhere for somebody, I'm sure. But uh, yeah, that's that's how I work. Coming up, Jeff talks to me about why he's such a champion of remote work, why he thinks it's the future of work and adjusting to life after leaving a company he built and ran for so many years. What's up, AFK listeners? Adam Stachowiak here, Editor-in-Chief of Changelog. If you've been enjoying Tim's exploration of the human side of creative work, you'll probably love our show, Founders Talk. Founders Talk features stories from founders, CEOs, and makers about their journey, their lessons learned, and the behind-the-scenes of building and running their company. Here's a preview of Pia Mancini, co-founder and CEO of Open Collective. She's sharing some of the struggles of being a mother and a startup founder. The first few months are absolutely hard, so super challenging, you know? They need your attention. They can't walk. They can't do anything for themselves. And, you know, you're trying to keep doing, but then also, you know, doing your responsibility as a parent. And it's just like, you know, it's just probably the most challenging, challenging parts of a parent's life is, is those first, you know, six months to nine months of a yeah, child's life. For sure. But it also, it also gives you um, an extra energy, like an extra, I don't know, creativity. I don't know if it's the hormones or what, but it's like you have that, you know, you, you go into a, yeah, you go into a different gear. Like yeah. You just, you just keep pushing forward. I don't know. There's something that kind of makes you, um, yeah, just shift gears into that extra thing and, and you can, and you can do it. Also, you. What I found mostly with um, motherhood is I don't have time for BS, essentially, like at all. Like this, I don't have. I have very little time to waste or to spare. So you become, at least I became really good at saying no to things and just really cutting, you know, cutting loose things or or, or situations or people that just 
yeah, I didn't, just didn't have time. It made me much more focused because the time I have away from my daughter is like, I'm doing this, right? Otherwise, I'm with her. So Founders Talk is all about in-depth, one-on-one conversation with founders and makers. If you dig that, learn more and subscribe at changelaw.com slash founders talk. From Changelog Media, this is Away From Keyboard. I'm Tim Smith. When Jeff and Matt Westgate started Lullabot in 2006, they decided that it would be a distributed company from day one. I've always thought it was such a brave decision, but Jeff describes it more as a happy accident. In itself, it was a little bit of a, a leap of faith, that missing part of my brain. <laughs> and uh, and uh, But it worked really well. Uh, and even just sort of because it was an experiment, it, it allowed everything to be more agile and thoughtful. That like, I don't know, how should we talk to each other? How should we keep in touch? How should we communicate? How should we, um, you know, when, when you have these barriers where you, you're not all coming into an office and kind of falling into these legacy systems and processes of like, ah, of course, I know what it means to work at an office and commute for an hour each direction. Like, I know how that works. Yeah. Um, but this, none of us knew how it worked. And so uh, it was really great to kind of figure it out as we went. But as we figured it out, it was like, this is great. Like, I want to share this with other people. And um, having worked at at O'Reilly Media in the early 90s and being a friend with uh, Tim O'Reilly. Tim has a saying that everyone has a book in them. What's your What's your book? You know, and uh, and and my wife has written several books about web design and uh, continues to do that. And so I thought, like, I want to share this, but I I don't quite feel like I can speak on behalf of a community of companies that are doing this. I could just talk about what Lullabot did, but I don't know if that will help anyone because it's kind of built into the company's DNA and I kind of want to get a good cross section of like what's going on. And I think that for companies to talk to each other would generally be good. And so I had this idea to do um, a conference, but a, but a sort of a discussion, uh, round, what I call a roundtable discussion conference. And we decided to call it Yonder, where we invited people that were running uh distributed companies, remote teams, company leaders and managers to just kind of sit around in a room together and and share, ask questions, share ideas and and uh, and have a discussion. And that's how Yonder got started. As I started to make my way out, out of Lullabot, I, I took the brand along with me and started doing a podcast and eventually hired some people to do content. And we have a, a, a an active newsletter now. Yonder.io is where people should go to um, find out more about Yonder and get on the mailing list and uh, listen to the podcast if you're a podcast person. And if you're listening to this podcast you probably are a podcast person (laughs) uh you know there's a there's a fair amount of uh resources out there that are sort of aimed at remote workers or or sort of digital nomads you know but my fear is that that discussion is a little bit of an echo chamber and it doesn't actually expand the job market it doesn't create Mm. more jobs for those people so my focus has been trying to talk to companies and about companies and how companies hire and manage and 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 run remote teams. I think remote workers will find it interesting and you know may it's sort of this idea of like managing up, you know, for for the workers <laughs> to understand what good management looks like, they can kind of nudge their managers in the right yeah. way. Hey, have you heard this podcast? And uh, you know, ultimately kind of create a better work environment. Um, but that's, you know, my goal is to my mission uh with with Yonder is to really expand that market. 
And, you know, it's, it's happening slowly. The people that are doing, the companies that are doing remote work, there's so much excitement and elation around how good it is that it's easy to kind of think that everyone must understand that. But really, it, like in that world of like Fortune 500 companies, we're just not there yet. Those companies are not champing at the bit to make remote work work. But I think, you know, we're going to hit the tipping point in, in the next few years. Uh, and the podcast is going to become very popular. Yeah, it's, it's already <laughs> pretty popular. But I like the I like the description that remote work is the future of work. And, you know, I, I really do think that the companies that have latched onto this idea have only benefited because they have this amazing pool of people that they can hire from. Absolutely. Uh, that isn't tied to any particular location. And I think a lot of the times you find people who are really great workers, you know, um, who are kind of devoid of the, the uh, as, as I like to say, ass and seat mentality, where as long as I'm here for eight hours, I, I did what I was supposed to do, right? Rather yeah. than, I, I feel like the remote work kind of, whole idea is to be productive in the moments that you're in front of your desk. Well, yeah. I mean, remote work is autonomy. Like the idea of autonomy is, is not an add-on to work when you're doing remote work. Like you can work at McDonald's and you're not going to have any autonomy. You could work at Starbucks and, oh, there's a little bit more culture and they give us a little <laughs> bit more choice. You know, I have some autonomy, you know, right. this feels great. If you're doing remote work, People can't look over your shoulder there. You know, there, there are certainly companies that are developing tools for this sort of big brother shoulder looking over. But you're kind of fighting against nature a little bit there, you know. Yeah. And then there are some prerequisites for allowing some autonomy, which is trust, uh, respect. Oftentimes, you know, and, and you mentioned this, but, uh, you know, to sort of expand on it a little bit, one of the reasons that companies who are hiring remote workers can get such great talent is because there are so many people that want to work remotely. Yeah. And you're not only are you choosing from a larger talent pool, kind of by definition, you're offering a better job, right? Because uh, it's more flexible and, and, and offers probably uh, autonomy and trust a lot and respect along with it, right? Hopefully, yeah. And, and hopefully, hopefully. I don't, you know, companies have all sorts of different cultures and even distributed companies have all sorts of different cultures. But this means like most of the companies I talk to, uh, you know, I was just talking to Addie Berry, who runs uh, Drupalize Me, which was a spinoff company from uh, Lullabot that does Drupal uh, training online. Uh, and she was saying they were hiring a uh, customer support person. She said that they got, I think it was like 3,000 applications in wow. <laughs> f f four or five days or something wow. like it was just like uh, incredible an amount of like, you know, and, and so from that, now you're, now you're just playing numbers, right? This is just statistics, you know, right. how many, how many of those people are good? How many of those people are great? How many of those people are better than you could imagine. Like, you know, just sift through them and, and find the ones that are better than you can imagine and then hire them. And now you've got people working at your company that are better than you can imagine, you know. <laughs> so so it's it's been a few years now uh, that you've left Lullabot. What, what led up to that decision? 
Well, uh, you know, uh, I'm I'm a I'm a starter. I'm a big thinker. Um, you know, I like solving really difficult problems, and um, I like you know making things that are kind of indistinct more distinct. Uh, you know, mm. things that are confusing more clear. You know, so that comes into like things like branding and kind of building culture and all that kind of stuff. And I I also really like working with really great talented people, and so. Uh, over the years with Lullabot, there were a lot of big problems to solve. You know, who are we? How do we talk about ourselves? What do we do? How yeah. do we do what we do? What, what is health insurance? How do you offer health insurance to employees? <laughs> you know, things right. like that that are these like, ah. Uh, and so over over time, I'm not saying that I did all of that, but I helped to find really great people to come in and help Lullabot to do that. And we have hired a, a really great leadership team of really capable people. I don't tend to carry a whole lot of ego when it comes to that kind of stuff. I'm happy to relinquish control and let other people uh, do things when they're when they're capable. And so I kind of got to a point where I, you know, was surrounded by all these really capable leader people, uh, you know, who were running the company and we had kind of figured out who we were. There were a couple of years that we're kind of looking for the missing pieces. What are we what are we not thinking about? What are we not thinking about? Like what are the pieces that are falling between the cracks? Like I've, you know, found somebody to do sales and I found someone to do HR, you know, what what are we not thinking about? But you know, as even those pieces started to get kind of at least defined if not fixed, um I found myself sort of uh, I wouldn't say with nothing to do, but just kind of getting antsy. And my business partner, Matt, started to see me kind of in that position. And he said, you know, what do you, what do you need? And I said, I don't know. Well, do you want to take some time off? You know, maybe you could take a sabbatical and just sort of, you know, find your mojo. And, and uh, when you're running a company, it's like having children, you know, you don't, you wouldn't ever consider not being there for them. Right. right. You would, you know, it's, this is, this is just, you know, this is my life. It's not even, you don't even think of it as a responsibility because, because the, there's not the option to not do that. You know, you'll, you have a responsibility to feed yourself, but it doesn't feel like a burden. It's just what you do, you know? And in that same way, I was just running lullabot. But as I started thinking about kind of stepping away and kind of catching my breath, um, it was really more appealing than I really kind of surprised myself. And uh, so I, I, I did that uh, for a while. And about six months later, Matt came to me and said, listen, I've been thinking if you wanted Lullabot to buy you out, we could do that. That would be a, you know, a way that we could go. And, um, and he'd been doing a whole lot of research about um, employee owned companies and just sort of the financial models around all of that. And, and, uh, and he said, listen, you know, we could do this for you. And then if I, Matt wanted to do that, maybe at some point down the road, you would be paving the way for a model for me to do that if I ever wanted to do that. But it, you know, it's taken me a good period of time to kind of uh, find my identity, you know, um, yeah. the, for so long it was, you know, the lullabot guy. And people would even say like, oh, do you still play music? And I'd say, well, I don't know. How long can you go like not playing music and still call yourself a musician? <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, because it was just like I was so, you know, entrenched in the lullabot stuff. And it was, I mean, it was emotionally rewarding. We, there were great people. We were working on great projects. Uh, yeah. You know, all of that stuff. I'm not saying that, that it was, but, you know, I was kind of, I definitely had sort of set that part aside. What, what has that adjustment period been for you? Because I was would assume that when you build a business and it's so successful as Lullabot has been and you running it for so many years, what is that adjustment like to walk away and, you know, 
now now try to have to, like you said before, trying to figure out what your identity is. Yeah, it's weird, um, but it's been nice not to carry that weight. You know, it allows me to even relate to the people who continue to work at Lullabot in a different ways. You know, I'm not the boss anymore. And I also, I, I started doing business coaching and, and talking to other people that lead other companies about um, what they're doing and kind of help them to think about their companies. And that's been super rewarding. You know, uh, it's, a you know, a lot of the same stuff I was doing as the CEO of Lullabot, but I get to kind of help these other people who have different problems out you know, and, uh, and share, share my experience. That's been really rewarding. And then I, I, I started a new band, uh, last year and we put out, a five song EP earlier this year and that it's been getting really good reviews and responses and people, you know, so I'm out, I just had a show on Saturday and it was really great. So it feels really good to kind of be exercising those muscles again, recording and kind of the more like entrenched creative side of things, because, you know, I mean, I, I think that business is creative and it ought to be creative, but kind of at scale when there's a lot of money involved and and I guess a lot of people involved too. You want to double check, right? You want to make sure the math adds up. So it's it's just really nice to be kind of back, you know, where I can just like I'm going to write a song that has one note. The whole song is just one note, you know. And like I can do that. People are going to say, "Oh, that's weird." I'm I'm curious to listen to it. Not like, "Oh my God, you're going to drive our company to the ground." <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, like that's yeah. a crazy idea. Why would you do that? You know, uh, so it's nice to have that outlet. And yeah, just, just nice balance. Jeff Robbins. You can find him at jjeff.com. Listen to songs from his band's latest EP at 123astronaut.com. AFK is produced, edited, and mixed by me, Tim Smith. The beats are from the one and only Breakmaster Cylinder. I'm Smith Timmy Tim on Twitter. You can find the show at AFK underscore show. Thank you to our sponsor, Hired. Head to Hired.com slash AFK. Our bandwidth is provided by Fastly. Learn more about them at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at rollbar.com and we're hosted on Linode servers. Head to linode.com slash changelog. We'll be taking a bit of a break so that I can take a much needed vacation and we'll be back on August 29th. One last thing before we go, Jeff told me what life is like having a record deal. I mean, uh, it wasn't particularly lucrative. You know, it meant that there was money to record. But more than that, it meant that, like, people cared. <laughs> you know, there was sort of a support system. You know, we paid ourselves very minimally, uh, just enough to get by, because we wanted to, in, you know, invest the money that was out there in making sure that the band could get out and have the money to tour and promote and be successful and stuff like that. So it was really, you know, it was it was great. You know, had a lot of, like, peak life experiences. You know, there's really nothing quite like standing on a stage playing to 20,000 people like that's pretty cool <laughs> you know and it's hard not to walk off stage and go like that was really cool I'm Tim Smith and this is Away From Keyboard